Life Out Loud is a literary nonfiction podcast series that features real student stories. Born in a John Jay College creative nonfiction writing classroom in the fall 2015 semester, Life Out Loud seeks to diversify the perspectives typically shared in the CNF genre. Our project aims to amplify voices seldom heard through artful truth-telling simply because we believe that all stories matter. We make them, and they make us. You can always listen at lifeoutloudpodcast.com. Hi there, and welcome back to Life Out Loud, a literary nonfiction podcast in which we tell true, maybe all too true stories. I'm Max, one of your hosts tonight. Hi, everyone. My name is Tatiana. Hi again, everyone. My name is Karen. I'm Ashley. Hi, everyone, and welcome to our second episode of the season. And I'm Christina. As Ashley said, if you are joining our big virtual roundtable tonight, this is the second episode of our eighth season entitled Shadow of the Shield. And I'm Brianna. In this episode, two international authors share stories that touch on some of the complexities and disappointments of police work. This first story is by an author who is choosing to remain anonymous under the pseudonym Alex. Alex is a 21-year-old international student in New York City. He loves watching movies, playing soccer, and writing and composing music in his free time. He spent two years as a police officer who focused on creating relationships with his community members and helping victims of abuse overcome trauma. During this time, writing became a daily outlet for expressing his ideas, fears, and hopes. This habit eventually evolved into full-blown music production. It became the medium for which he could finally communicate his labyrinth of emotions. His music today centers on these exact topics of life, death, and morality. While his music has yet to be published, he hopes that he can at least share them with his community sometime in the future. A warning that this story immediately touches on very difficult themes and portrays some graphic content that may be difficult to hear. Listener discretion is advised. Let's take a listen to the piece entitled The Police Story, read tonight by one of our own hosts, Maximus Anduhar. There's blood on my shoes. I recognize that rust-like smell of iron. I inch closer and closer to the entrance of the 51st story tower, faltering with every step I take. I try to avert my mind and my eyes, but the boy in front of me needs help. On my six, the hordes of reporters and passerbys grow every second. Their eyes watch my every step and their screams smother my ears. As my heart thumps and my hands reluctantly quiver, I take a deep breath, close my eyes, and transport myself back to a safe place. I'm now back in my living room, nestled in a fluffy bean bag, while my father is slumped on the adjacent couch. We're watching Police Story, an action movie starring Jackie Chan. I glued my eyes at the 15-year-old Ray Tube as Jackie Chan discharged a flurry of kicks and punches on four henchmen, all while hanging from the side of a bus. I picked up my ears to filter the comical thuds and crashes from the cracking audio of the VHS tape. It was a true action spectacle of good versus evil, and I wanted to be a part of it. So with its pure hopes and juvenile dreams, I wished to be a police officer one day. 14 years later, and here I am, in a shining blue uniform and a fully loaded firearm. This is my chance to be a hero. Most days start and end mundanely. When I'm not patrolling, I'm stuck at my desk, which sits at an isolated corner of our L-shaped room. Time moves slower at the office. Minutes feel like hours, and hours feels like days. The only work I'm ever given is to print and laminate flyers and posters. By noon, I would fill the office with acrid fumes of hot plastic and fresh ink. My office, already dull gray and repulsive in design, now had a fitting smell that matched its visual repugnance. When I'm out in the city, I usually spend a chunk of my shift patrolling shopping malls and train stations a trick I learned to escape the scorching afternoon sun. My commander, who usually chooses me for his shift partner, secretly appreciates that I plan our patrols like this. Perhaps it's precisely this that makes him want to patrol with me. 
Besides, no crime really happens here. It's so safe and so easy to forget that you're a police officer sometimes. I often find myself a mere observer of the hustle and bustle, but while I feel like a tourist or a walking CCT at times, the occasional errant misdemeanor always wakes up the policeman in me. In my first few weeks at the job, there were some moments where I felt like a hero, albeit on a lesser scale than Jackie Chan. When I wasn't window shopping at the mall, I spent my time looking and catching miners for pilfering stationery at a bookstore or a candy bar at 7-Eleven. Today, by all accounts, was an uneventful day as you could imagine, until we got the call. A boy was trying to jump from the top floor of his condominium. When we heard the dispatch, we raced to our police car, slammed the accelerator, and powered up the siren. Now, this made me feel like a hero. I imagined that I was some super cop, blasting my sirens to announce that help had arrived. When we reached the apartment complex, I jumped out of the car and sprinted towards the crowd. I squeezed past bystanders and reporters, trying to catch a glimpse of the boy. But as soon as I emerged from the crowd, I halted, finding myself staring at his remains. His body had been reduced to a clump of human flesh and bone. His head had fulminated on the parapet above, and his brain had been smeared across the asphalt. The smell of iron from his blood had turned sour, and I could almost taste its metallic sharpness in my mouth. I pinched my nose as I glanced at his shattered teeth scattered across the road and his cerebral spinal fluid that seeped towards me. I could do nothing but stand aghast like the rest of the crowd. When I first got the call, I held on to the hope that I could still carry him to safety, but now I see there's nothing to grab onto. As I think about my next steps, my commander, frantically searching the car boot for a body cover, calls out to me, Alex, pick up what you can! But what the fuck am I even supposed to pick up? By then, the birds began to swarm his remains, so I followed, hastily picking up the lumps of brain matter and skull fragments. I gathered as much as possible and deposited them under the covers, sheets, where most of his body lay. My gloved hands, now crimson red instead of pale blue, still tremble as I feel the fresh blood trickling down to my fingertips and onto my polished uniform. Some fucking hero, Alex. Soon after, I found his school bag on the balcony. I knew it was intentional. I probably should have left it for my commander to inspect, but I was the first to find it and I couldn't help myself. With a fresh pair of gloves, I forged for evidence and found a letter. Dear Mom and Dad, please forgive me. I try to do well at school, but I can't go on. My teachers tell me I'm stupid. At this point, I didn't have to read the rest to know what happened. Then I found his phone. His wallpaper was a family photo. That was when I realized that I met the boy before. His family had sought mental health treatment for him, but he'd gotten denied because he did not previously attempt suicide. What kind of stupid qualification is that? Why didn't I do something then? Could I have convinced someone to take this family seriously? I could not answer myself. After leaving the scene for the cleanup team, I returned to my vehicle, bloodied, drained, and depressed. He did it because of school? Fucking school? <sighs> I grappled my first case of death on the job for many reasons, but mainly, I think, because there was no crime, no criminal, only a victim. No Jackie Chan movies could have prepared me for this. In the following months, I dealt with other bloody cases, two other suicides, one violent crime between classmates, another within a family at the hands of a parent, and others. I soon learned that things weren't as safe as I thought here. But I also learned that crime wasn't just about good people and bad people. While these appeared to be heinous crimes, 
My unbudging hope in humanity refused to believe that these crimes were superficially driven by money or hate. So I spent my days in the office, hypothesizing and searching for an answer. And then I found one. People here were suffering from mental health traumas that weren't fully recognized by the city or nation. As simple as that sounds, it was all I needed to realize that police work is not one-dimensional. I started by appealing to the offices that handled suicide prevention and requested they change their criteria. Unfortunately, my appeal was rejected by those who'd only read about suicide cases in newspapers. Regardless, I started a program for which police officers visited schools and talked to the kids about mental health and safety. I also established a call center for victims of online abuse and personally took the first several thousand calls myself when nobody supported my idea. My desk, a once desolate and dull prison, became the nucleus for which I would launch this initiative. Eventually, dozens of other officers were appointed to help field the calls. By the time I left the force, we had reduced suicide rates by 40% over the last year in my community. Despite how good that sounds, I'll never actually know how many people I helped. Perhaps if I had done something earlier, that boy would still be alive. I can't know that for sure, and no one will ever will. All I know is that most of us have been through events that can crush one's will to live. In my efforts, even in the slightest extent, can help someone overcome those traumas, I would do it all again. Even though I have now left my job in police work, I did my best, but it was time for me to hand this project over to my understudy. Some days, I'm happy with all I did to encourage this kind of reform. Other days, I just think, some fucking hero, Alex. Mm, yeah wow Wow. last line perfect it was one hell of a story truly and before we really get into looking at this even further and kind of dissecting it and like all reflecting on it life out loud for anyone listening wants to recognize that stories about suicidality or that have that as an aspect can touch people in unexpected ways We want to share with listeners that if you or someone you know is experiencing difficulties with suicidal thoughts, there are resources available to you. The Crisis Text Hotline is there for any crisis, providing free 24-7 mental health support via text. And crisis counselors can help you move from a hot moment to a cool moment and are equipped to deal with all mental health crises. You can contact them by texting HOME, H-O-M-E, to 741741. There's also the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, which many have heard about. That's a national network of local crisis centers that provides free and confidential emotional support to people in suicidal crisis or emotional distress 24 hours a day, seven days a week in the United States. Committed to improving crisis services and advancing suicide prevention by empowering individuals and advancing professional best practices and building awareness. Their phone number is 1-800-273-8255 and their website is suicidepreventionlifeline.org. For a list of more resources, please check your website. For this story, we actually don't have the author here tonight as he wants to remain anonymous. So for this, it will just be us talking about it in a roundtable-like discussion. The flow is very natural and uncensored. We can feel the excitement that is present when he talks about getting to the first dispatch of that call. When he says he raced to the police car, slammed the accelerator, and powered up the siren. Now, this made me feel like a hero. I imagined that I was some super cop, blasting my siren to announce that help had arrived. And we feel how frustrated and drained he is after the crime scene that he's when he says he did it because of school, fucking school. What impact does this have on you all as a reader or a listener when you see this style of writing? Personally, when I see this type of style writing to me it feels as if someone is telling the story to me like in person 
Yeah. So, like, if we're, like, in a car or if it's, like, a, a friend telling me the story. So, like, I most definitely felt the emotions through the screen. I feel like it shows a lot of honesty and, like, vulnerability, which feels as if we're being trusted to hear the full details of the story from the events that happened and to what this person felt as he took the call and, like, the events he saw. Yes. Completely. Like, there's that, like, push and pull that comes with someone, like, like truly recounting as they are, like, speaking that it it really does feel like so much closer and more impactful more impactful I say I mean like not more all of the time but in this I think there's something to do with like the length of it too that it like the length of the the story itself that it wasn't like super long that something like this when it's like written so like um as though it's speaking it it feels like it's being spoken in a way that is like it, it gets to you more than like something a little bit more I would say like padded for language you know what I mean mm-hmm. yeah to kind of like pivot off of what you said like to speak about such like these are very like heavy topic and subject matter and the very vivid descriptions to hear this all in such like a personal way you can tell that the person who wrote this really feels deeply for what they're saying and like believes in it this doesn't feel fabricated it feels like on point especially since you're having such like on the surface dramatic subject matter that a lot of people don't experience you know this is something we see in tv but to Mm -hmm. have it like someone experience it and then eloquently explain it really speaks to the character of that individual and really makes the like the theme resound even more yeah that's what i really like about the jackie chan references like you were saying about like it's it's like the dramatic but the the references to that really ground this yeah yeah Yeah, because um um, I feel like at one point we've all watched at least one clip of Jackie Chan, right? So we're the author paints an expectation in our mind, right? And um, well, they experience an expectation, so then we're able to connect to their expectation, and then we're able to like symbolically stand next to him. What I loved about this story is how um, I think a critical lesson in like explaining like everything and like anything in the world is to like recognize the fact that like everything that has happened in the present didn't just like happen like overnight you know it was through a whole right. of processes right and so like this story really like highlights that lesson as in like when when someone becomes um an activist when someone steps in when someone steps into like this a stage of like oh i'm gonna change the world right something happened like a, 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 mm-hmm. a, a like a switch was flicked right and yeah. that switch was only flicked through an injustice right um so yeah, and and then like um, overall this um this 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 these themes of injustices, um no th- these themes of justices, are symbiotically like made by injustices. Do you get what I'm saying? Yeah, like there is no there is no justice without injustice. Is that what you mean? Yes. Yeah. Oh yikes! <sighs> yeah, that's really heavy. Mm -hmm. wow that's so beautifully explained i just want to say that like wow (laughs) really really and um we're all talking about our favorite uh, parts of the piece it was how the author paints so such vivid uh, mental pictures for the reader or the listener uh the most drawing of course is the description of the crime scene he reflects on the entirety of his journey at the end of the story and the true impact that moment becomes apparent as we see his efforts to make a difference in his community the description of that scene was undoubtedly graphic I mean it had my stomach turning just like imagining it um the details are so vivid you you can picture yourself right there with the author yeah I honestly don't know what I would do in that situation if I were to see that so with that being said I want to ask everyone what they think about the author's choice to include that vivid imagery and how it drove the story forward for you as the reader and listener. I mean, I definitely think that it was helpful because I felt like I was able to really see it. And I felt like I was 
like when he said some hero i was just like wow like i could see it like you raced to the crime scene you wanted to be there you wanted to help the person that's what you wanted to do in like mm. the jackie chang movie you finally made it and it was too late and there was mm. nothing that you could do about it and i could just imagine everything he was feeling and then that being like his very first crime scene that's traumatic for anybody mm-hmm. that's on the yeah. floor you have it like yeah. it's just, it was a wow for me I was yeah. just wow I felt so sorry for the person who died like and him the person who wrote this story I was just like wow like I can't imagine what they were going through if I felt like I was shaking yeah. mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think it was like the uh, like from like a writing technical standpoint it was like the perfect way to position the reader right into his shoes to be able to set him up for like you know his ideal image of like what a hero what a cop should be but then to be hit yeah. with like the like the painstaking of reality can really speak to how uh like he decided to take this and then do something um how he feels impactful with it to be a hero in a different way that is kind of not really like discussed about you know Mm -hmm. mental health and preventing this sort of thing rather than being there to fix it you know preventative Mm -hmm. care is just as important and I feel like that's such Mm a important part to this piece and through this positioning of the listener uh he's able to really um drive that home and to really evoke these raw emotions within the listener and hopefully get them to also want to do something to prevent acts like this happen in the first place. Yeah. Yeah, it is inspiring. I just want to say about the sensory imagery, um, you know, I, I don't usually talk too much on these, but as the person who read several versions of this and worked on ma- making sure it was anonymous the way the author wanted, I struggled with suggesting to the author like, should we tone down some of this sensory imagery? I mean, this is really hard to read. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was really close to making some suggestions. And then I was like, no, because, yeah. right? Like, the issue is you don't know what suicide, we throw around the word suicide all the time, yeah. but, you know what but you don't mm-hmm. know what a suicide really is until you see it, maybe. Until you experience it with someone you know or love, or if you actually see it on the floor. Right. And in this particular case, and like what Max was just saying, right, the author went and talked to people and was like, we need to do this for preventative care. We need to do this. And the author specifically says, I was turned down by people who had only ever read about suicide or something like that. Right. Mm -hmm. Right? Oh, yeah. I felt like the whole point was people who only talk about suicide in theory, right, are making decisions. And it's like, if you'd really seen it, if you were really there, so I thought it was important that we keep it and that we all see it like we were really there. Yeah. Because that's what it is. That's you know? what, that was a really good point. Because yeah. like from at least from the classes that I've been in with the professors that I've had that have experience in the in the field of criminal justice, they're always reminding people that it's not um like the TV shows that a lot of people see, like mm-hmm. criminal crimes and the rookie and stuff like that, where they're 45 minute episodes and nine times out of 10 they get resolved oh, yes. in the end and that's just not the reality of it and it was just re- it was really heartbreaking um to see that all unfold and it, I think it's a really good reminder to people to like you know if you're going to go into this field you need to understand that there are going to be people who it's not just like crimes that are happening it's people are hurting themselves and cops are expected to respond to these mental health crises that they might not necessarily be prepared and trained for. Right. That's what I was thinking throughout is that this author didn't expect to find a crime scene. Like they expected to find a kid who needed some help getting Mm -hmm. like talked down, getting some like help, getting some counseling of some sort. Mm -hmm. They didn't expect to see graphicness and I think that there is nothing that draws you to never want to see something again than seeing it for the first time and you feel all of their motivations because of that expectation that they like lead up to of like I'm gonna be a hero I saw Jackie Chan so I'm ready like I'm I I, I'm ready to be part of that I'm ready to like 
fight uh, bad guys or like yeah. fight yeah. the bad guys. I'm ready to get in my car, speed over there, and be like, "Listen, I got this." I'm a good guy. Save the day. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and, and just Jackie Chan. It's like Superman. It's Captain America. It's like all these superheroes all that we like grew up and like look up to. So they feel like we've all experienced that, you know, like wanting to be like the hero. Yeah. I mean, I definitely. Yes. The person um, who wrote this story nailed it on being more aware of suicide and what it means and how it affects people. And it just, it was very eye-opening. Yeah. And even the crimes that come up, like, toward the end, there's, like, a list of some other violent crimes. Um, You know, I think, like, one of the biggest takeaways from this is just the idea that it's not so simple, right? Like, crime isn't just about good guys and bad guys like, right it's really that, like i said that actually it leads us into our next just, question yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not just like oh like i'm gonna wake up one day and commit a crime like no it was like you know something happened and like i think in like through looking at like these crimes from more human lens from more like um not like a linear like way of thinking that like yeah you committed a crime so like you deserve to be consequences like yeah sure that too that's also just equally as valid but we also have to acknowledge the fact that like there have been like you know certain things in one's past yeah it's just more complicated than yeah i'm black and white it's, it's, very, it's interactive it's not just linear Right, because if we want to be preventative instead of just responsive, we have to look at the whole picture, which is more complicated than just. It's like a huge puzzle. We're like all over. And it makes me wonder why it's still called a crime scene. Like, what, what would you call that? Something to reflect on. Yes, that's so true. Um, I feel like also like since I feel like I don't know society is so like just desensitized. I guess like from like all like the horrible like things we see on the news and on the media so it's just like reading about it and just like I'm just so happy like every and all vivid details were included because not only does it make it more real but it's something um that like we just can't conceal like all the details in the story because um it's like putting a band-aid over a bullet wound you know like it's we, it's just something that's extremely important to talk about and it also most definitely shows like the negative parts of being a police officer like someone mentioned before it's not what we see on tv shows it's not all sunshine and flowers all the time but um looking at a more broad topic the author talks about how their preconceived notions about his career path changed as he gained more experience saying i learned that crime wasn't just about good people and bad people while these appear to be heinous crimes, my unbudging hope in humanity refused to believe that these crimes were superficially driven by money or hate. This type of nuance is critical for advocates for justice, which we all are. As John Jay students, what are some thoughts you all have about this? Um, so much. Um, before coming into like John Jay, I was obviously a teenager and as a teenager I watched a lot of Law and Order so mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure like a lot of you guys have had experience whether it be like in CIS or Criminal Minds there was like some like crime show that we probably all like consumed and you're like oh, yeah. you like this like image mm-hmm. where it's, like, yeah I'm gonna go in and I'm gonna change the world and do something but now that I'm here I realize like like it's such a it's such a huge complicated process and really it's not a I'm going to save the world. It's a, we have to save the world. It has to be something Mm -hmm. collective, you know? And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, um, um, we may think that like the best way to like save the world or help the world is like to engage on like some sort of international level when in reality, the most impact one a person could have is at the microscopic level, you know? So like for me, that's just being more kind to people, like, you know, whether it be like, good morning or like, hey, how are you? Or saying, excuse me, like just being properly mannered. I don't know. Those type of lessons came back into my life um, while in John Jay. I saw that like if because um, 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 a lot of my professors talk about the um, recognition, philosophy of recognition, you know, like Hegel, dialect and all that um, philosophy. And so I think that through this recognition, through recognizing that like police officers, the first responders also carry that that emotional debt 
is something that's worth to look back on and to admire and to respect, you know? Mm -hmm. And it also makes me think of like, you know, we all have our notions of like the heroes and the villains. And like this story really tackles the idea of like, what you know the idealistic uh dramatized hero is versus like what the true heroes are and like how that really plays out and it really makes me reflect mm. on like how the same like why the same notion like criminals and like villainy like we oftentimes are very like condemning and do we hardly ever think about okay but what got them to this point where yeah. did we fail as a society to where now they feel that a crime or committing a crime is their only way out of any situation? You know, it really makes me like the story really made me reflect on like, God, it's one thing to like hear about things and people claim all the time, oh, I'm tired of hearing about it. And you're only hearing about it. Now let's actually go to like seeing it, seeing it be happen in front of you and how that affects an individual. And that sort of nuance is there with like good and evil. It just it just makes me really want change in one way or the other. Not sure how, but something has to, or else it will hardly ever stop these sort of like heinous crimes. Yeah, I had the same kind of idea during this. Yeah. Um like you go. (laughs) No, you go, you go. Okay. Um I was thinking about how uh, John Jay as an institution is responsible for producing a lot of these uh, police officers that are going out into the field and they're they're part of the MIPD. So it's a really big responsibility for us to have training and to be aware that for some people, like the cops are the heroes and for some people, the cops are the villains, like we've seen in both stories. So like for me, having the privilege I had growing up um, I've only ever had good experiences with police officers. They were the heroes to me. And then when I got to John Jay and I, I like broadened my horizons, I had that coming of age moment where that's not the case for everyone. And I feel confident that John Jay is making efforts to produce better police officers and be part of the change. Uh-huh. Obviously, there's a long way to go. It's um, it's systemic. Um, and it's it's going to take a lot, but it starts with awareness, like what we're doing right now. And I really have a lot, I have a lot of hope for the future, although like we're all saying, we're not sure how long it's going to take or what we have to do. But at least in what in my experiences and the classes I've had and, and the people I've interacted with, John Jay is, is doing their part. It's great to hear. Yeah, that's really wonderful yeah, to hear as a, as a person. Like, a platform like this, you know, awareness, recognition, um, it really um, gives that new perspective, not even new perspective, but like it highlights this perspective, yeah. right? Yeah, I mean, I will say like as a as a former John Jay student and then John Jay employee, and now I work in anti-trafficking and human rights, the impact of things like this of people truly like understanding the causes for why people become victimized um whether at their own hand or their own hand or the hand of someone else or even at the hands of the people that are meant to prevent them from being victimized or meant to bring them justice i i think it's really important to have stories like this that highlight just nuance and beg people to understand um, without like begging necessarily, but ask people to understand, invite people into their lives and say, do you get it? You know, I think stories like this are just incredible. And I um, I think it's cool. <laughs> I think it's cool and important. God, it is cool and important. <laughs> it is cool and important. And with that, I just want to say uh, thank you all for being here at our little round table. Um, thank the author for writing this piece and letting us into this part of their life. And for all of you that are are listening to this, yeah, this was a wonderful conversation with all of you. It's so, so great to sometimes when it's just us to, to like hear all of your perspectives so thoroughly. So thank you all. Yay.
Thank you. This second story is by a new author to the podcast, Chrysanthi. Chrysanthi is a 22-year-old John Jay graduate with a degree in forensic psychology with a minor in English. She is an international student from Athens, Greece, where she returned after finishing her studies this spring semester. Reading and writing were always a big part of her life, although the passion she holds for the latter took some time to realize. After graduating, she wants to continue her studies both in her field as well as continuing to work on writing fiction primarily, but also nonfiction. When she's not working, she can be found writing, listening to music, hanging with friends, or staying up during ungodly hours on her balcony, staring at the view, and enjoying some whiskey. Let's take a listen to Chrysanthi's piece entitled, Not the Next Alexis. A warning that this story immediately touches on very sensitive topics and may be difficult to hear. Listener discretion is advised. Exarchia is one of the oldest neighborhoods in Athens and one of my favorites. It's home to some of the country's most creative graffiti, sometimes political, like anarchy symbols, and sometimes just plainly artistic, like the head of a big blue owl taking around a corner. On every wall, posters spread the word of protests or live music shows. Exarchia attracts all sorts of people, from punks in steel-toe boots and mohawks, to hippies dressed in colorful trousers and locks in their hair. You can find unique thrift stores, neoclassical buildings, and cafes, all a mix of trendy and traditional. Most often, though, this area is synonymous to riots, demonstrations, radical liberals or leftist groups, anti-fascists, and it is considered the anarchist quarter of Athens. This unique quarter is also known as the scene of a murder that shocked the nation and sadly continues to be relevant today. On the 6th of December of 2008 in Exarchia, 15-year-old Alexis Grigoropoulos was shot and killed by a special guard of the Hellenic police. Alexis has become a household name. Everyone knows him, and every year on the anniversary of his death, people all over Greece take to the streets and protest against police brutality. Even though this wasn't a racially motivated incident of police brutality, Alexis still became a type of Trayvon Martin figure across the country. Each year, at the anniversary, students sit out in the yard for a few hours and don't go to class as a form of protest. In Greek, we call it apohi. The first time I took part in this was in middle school, I believe. It isn't a clear memory, and I'm not sure at the time I didn't really understand why we we're doing this. And let's be honest, it was also an excuse not to go to class. As I grew older, though, and learned more about Alexis, I realized the importance of our seemingly insignificant form of protest. We would sit out in the cold... I don't remember any teachers coming out and telling us to go to class. It probably happened, but I have no recollection of it. Maybe they understood why we did what we did, and maybe they supported us. Even if 70 kids from a high school in Holargos protesting didn't really make a difference. It mattered to us. Alexis lived in Paleopsychiko, an upscale area in Athens, and he was a student at Moraitis School a private school with a good re reputation. He was 15 at the time, so he had just entered high school. There were people who said, what business did he have down there? Paleopsychiko is not exactly next to Exarchia. It is located in northern Athens, and it's known for its rather affluent collection of residents and their large homes. That, alongside with the fact that Alexis went to Moraitis school, which is known for his high-achieving students, made people wonder why he was in Exarchia in the first place, as if to say he was testing his luck. Alexis was with a group of friends, all teenagers like him, when they came into an argument with the special guards, who were told by superiors to drop the whole thing and return to their station. They ended up leaving their card outside of Pasok, 
a social democratic political party headquarters and then going back to the scene on foot. We do not know what their initial conversation with Alexis and his friends was about. The policeman reported that the group attacked them with bottles and rocks and that Epaminondas Corconeas fired two warning shots in the air and one on the ground. According to them, one of the bullets ricocheted and hit Alexis. Eyewitnesses came forward after the incident and disputed the policeman, saying that the gun was aimed at the group instead and that it was in fact the policeman that instigated them, not the other way around. Even though Alexis was transported to the nearest hospital immediately, he was pronounced dead soon after. According to the coroner, the bullet had gone straight through his heart and he died instantly. His death was a spark that started the 2008 riots in Athens. Young people took to the streets demanding better living conditions and reforms against police violence. 2008 was a difficult year for Greece, with unemployment steadily rising and the economic crisis thriving. What begun as a demonstration escalated to violent riots with cars, shopfronts, apartment building entrances and businesses being vandalized and destroyed. Rioters came into violent altercations with riot police as well. Some people were arrested and both policemen and rioters were badly injured. Within the first two days after Alexis' murder, riots were reported in Thessaloniki, Ioannina, Komotini, Kastoria, Patra, Tripoli, Volos, Chios, Trikala, Mitilini, Agrinio, Kavala, Kerkira, Pirea, Hanya, Iraklio, Rodo, Karditsa, Lamia, Stilida, Drama, Xanthi, Lagada, Kozani, Alexandrupoli, Larissa, and Corinthos. Given the political and economic landscape of Greece at the time of this incident, it seems only natural that such riots would spark. With unemployment already on all-time high and rising, corruption within the government, the overall economic crisis that plagued the country, and numerous instances of police brutality in the past, Alexis's death was the last straw. I don't think anyone had hopes that the culprits would be punished. But surprisingly, two years later, in 2010, Paminondas Corconeas was sentenced to life in prison. It seemed that this story had a happy ending and that everyone was punished for their crimes. And they were, until last year. In 2022, it was reported that in July of 2019, an appeals court accepted Corconeas' clean record until the shooting as a mitigating factor for his release. This decision was challenged by the Supreme Court prosecutor Vasilis Pliotas, and Corconeas was sent back to prison in March 2022. In July of 2022, though, the Court of Appeals did indeed accept his prior clean record as a mitigating factor. After a second trial on the 28th of June 2022, Epaminondas Corconeas was officially released. Alexis's murder was an event that was broadcasted around the world and people in many different countries, such as Cyprus, the UK, and Turkey, showed their solidarity with peaceful, and some not-so-peaceful, protests. On December 5th, 2022, the eve of Alexis's anniversary of death, another young boy, a Greek Roma boy, named Kostas Fragoulis, was shot by a policeman in Thessaloniki. He passed away in hospital on December 13, 2022. Kostas was only 16 years old, just a year older than Alexis was. He was married to Stella, who was also 16, and they had a little baby girl together. Now, Stella is left alone to raise her little daughter, who is searching for her father. He was still going to school. According to the media, Kostas filled up his car with 20 euros worth of petrol and left without paying. Four policemen who were at the petrol station at the time chased him down in motorcycles and one of them reported that Costas turned the car around and aimed at them. Then, the 34-year-old police officer fired two shots, one in the air and one at the car. He was transported to hospital 
where he had surgery to remove a bullet from his head. At the same time, the Roma community, an ethnic minority all over Europe, in Thessaloniki, joined Costas's family and protested outside the hospital. They threw rocks at the police and they reciprocated with stun grenades. In Athens, similar events took place, where riot police and protesters reacted in the same way. Costas's father was manhandled by a riot police officers outside the courthouse where he was protesting alongside other people for his child. Costas might have become the next Alexis. That's what people were afraid of. Both in Thessaloniki and Athens, massive protests took place and people held up banners saying that Costas was targeted because he was part of a discriminated minority. In Thessaloniki, Riot police threw chemicals and stun grenades at the protesters, while a group of people threw rocks and Molotov cocktails at them. It's not unlike the protests that take place for Alexis sometime. The Roma population across Europe and in Greece are quite different from the rest of the population. Their skin is darker, darker than that of Mediterraneans. Their hair and eyes are dark too. They have their own traditions, culture, and even language. They have their own way of life. The Greek-Roma people have always been discriminated against, and they are victims of casual discrimination every day. The leading theory regarding the origins of the Romani people in Europe is that they were brought over from India as slaves hundreds of years ago. They are the largest minority group in Greece, with an estimated population of up to 300,000. Some believe it's even more. A study revealed that 34% of Greeks would feel uncomfortable with having a colleague that is Roma, while in the EU, the percentage was just 20%. That is still high, but it's not one-third of the population. Greek-Roma people have been marginalized and discriminated against for years, and the situation does not seem to get any better. We are always told to be wary of them and that they are thieves and bad people. Some refer to them using the term yifti, which translates to gypsies in English and is a derogatory term. Maybe this is true for some of them. Maybe some are criminals. But then again, that is true for everyone, regardless of race and ethnicity. As we say in Greek, you can't put everyone in the same sack. They tend to live in suburban areas. One example is Agia Varvara in Athens. Some are poorer than others. Some still live in settlements or tents, although in general they have adopted a more urban lifestyle. In Halandri, which is an area next to where I grew up in Athens, there is a Roma camp, which I believe has been demolished now. They are neglected by the state, which, alongside additional factors, has led to rise in child labor and abuse, low school attendance, police discrimination, and drug trafficking within the community. Housing appears to be the most common issue for these people since they do not own the properties in which they reside. Other than that, poverty and unemployment are also important issues within the Roma community. Roma people that are integrated in society are active politically, economically, and socially while the ones that live outside of societal margins are practically invisible. Generally, Greek attitudes towards Roma people are negative. They are seen as criminal elements. Most of them, though, are Greek citizens, which provides them with some protection from racist attacks and remarks. What is particularly alarming, though, is the spread of hate towards the Greek Roma population online, in social media and blogs. I have had encounters with Roma people before, just as everyone else, I'm sure. There are times where men sit around traffic lights and offer to wash your car's windscreen or they sell miscellaneous items. Other times, one might even see Roma children begging on the street. Most of the time, though, I saw them in bus stops, waiting patiently for the next bus alongside me or just hanging out in parks and squares. That is not to say that all Greek Roma people are beggars, it is only a small population of them that are. I have images of Greek Roma women waiting for the bus with their families. Some have little babies in strollers. They wore long trousers or skirts and long sleeve tops even in the summer sometimes. Some had kerchiefs tied around their heads, something that reminded me of my grandma. 
I recall one time that I was walking in Monastiraki with my hands in my pockets and a young girl that appeared to be Roma tried to put her hands in my pocket and steal whatever was in it. I turned to face her and she walked away quickly and disappeared into the crowds. The Greek Romani population is seen as lesser than, as criminals and thieves. But still, we cannot judge a whole group based on a few people that are part of it. This type of behavior has led to all these ugly stereotypes. As far as religion is concerned, most are Greek Orthodox Christians and subsequently have Greek names and use the Greek language. A smaller part of the population is Muslim and they have adopted Turkish identities. They reside primarily in Western Thrace, a part of northern Greece that is close to the border with Turkey. In Thessaloniki, on the 13th of December of 2022, 1,500 people gathered in a Roma settlement to mourn Kostas. Amongst them, many friends and relatives. Some placed banknotes in the coffin as per Roma tradition. Just the year before, an 18-year-old Roma man named Nikos Sabanis was shot and killed during a car chase. Throughout the past few years, other Roma men have been injured or shot, even killed, due to confrontation with the police while allegedly trying to escape them. In the case of Costas, they said that he turned his pickup truck around and tried to ram the four police motorbikes that chased him. The police officer faces a felony court for attempted manslaughter with possible intent and a misdemeanor court for illegally firing his weapon. Initially, he was on house arrest, but then a panel of judges released him on bail, the only condition of which was that he doesn't leave the country. After Costas passed away in hospital, a graffiti was painted at the site of the shooting, where until late September at least, people were still visiting and leaving candles and flowers. After Costas passed away, his parents and wife were inconsolable, still searching for peace, still searching for justice. Stella, his widow, tried to commit suicide by taking a bunch of pills and had to be hospitalized for three days. In an article by Vice Greece, journalist Kostas Kaduris writes that they all sit around and eat matze, which is the Romani word for fish. They drink coffee and play Kostas' favorite music. Stella was asked why she tried to commit suicide. She replied, my husband is in the dirt. Kostas will probably not become the next Alexis. But his death is just as important and just as telling of the problems of police brutality in the country. Some have argued that the police officer who shot him was released on bail and not incarcerated while waiting trial simply because Costas was Roma. Some people might not value Roma lives, but that doesn't change the fact that Stella is now left alone to care for their child. 38 days after his death, Kostas' family and other Greek Roma people who wanted to show their solidarity came together at his memorial. His father's face had a veil of anger draped over it, towards the system, towards the lack of justice. There is no justice, he says. The Roma community that has gathered say that they are afraid to act because every time they do something, they are thrown in jail because they are a minority that is not taken seriously and have so much prejudice and bad stereotypes attached to them. They seek justice, but find it nowhere. There is only one thing for sure, that Alexis and Costas are both two examples of the same societal issue. And yet, it's only Alexis that became a household name. Is it because it's too early for Costas, or is it because he was Greek-Roma? Wow. Wow. wow that was was powerful that was very that powerful was amazing. Very moving. i really enjoyed wow. it wow you too before we begin the episode we want to acknowledge that stories with police brutality as a subject matter can hit some listeners in an especially hard way if you are struggling with the topic of this story there are resources available to you the national police accountability project npap is a nonprofit organization that focuses on holding law enforcement accountable and promoting justice and accountability in policing. Their mission is to protect the civil and human rights of individuals in their encounters with law enforcement and to work towards the elimination of police misconduct and abuse. 
NPAP provides legal support and resources to individuals who have experienced police misconduct or brutality. They connect individuals with attorneys specializing in police accountability cases, offering guidance, legal representation, and advocacy throughout the legal process. NPAP also conducts research, collects data, and shares best practices to promote systemic changes in policing. You can find out more about the resources available to you at policebrutalitycenter.org. Thank you, Tatiana. With that being said, let's get into the interview for this incredibly informative story. The cases in this story discuss numerous factors that lead to injustices in Greece, colorism, lack of proper police procedure, and violence against protesters attempting to stand up for justice. There are clear attempts by police to silence the protesting of the injustices against Alexis and Costas. What was your motivation, not only in writing this piece, but also in choosing literary journalism to tell this story? Well, um, we had the choice in class, obviously, for our fourth micro essay to write literary journalism. And it was something that I had never tried before. I really wanted to give it a shot. And I chose this topic because everyone knows Alexis. Everybody and their mother knows Alexis. And uh, the 10 year anniversary, no, 15 year anniversary um, of his death is coming up in, in a little over than a month. So I thought that since he was a part of, you know, my life growing up, because I, I write in the piece about how in schools we would do this thing called double he, which is where we would all sit outside and not go to class as a form of protest. Um, so that was part of my life growing up, you know, going to school here. Uh, and I just, there's a lot of issues with police brutality here in Greece. And I really wanted to give um, my, my fellow classmates, you know, paint them a picture. Because, you know, when you hear police brutality, you know, you think America, um, where it's mostly racially motivated. Um, but I wanted to show them that it happens elsewhere as well. Right. It's it's mm -hmm. uh, an international issue. Um, so yeah, that's that's why I wanted to write about it. That's that's such an important lesson to give to our listeners in, in you know, giving us your story, because it also goes to show that police brutality is more so corruption within the state, right? Yeah. And so. I think in academia, we're constantly like framing these issues as a simply it's it has, it's like a Western it's a Western thing, you know. But in reality, it was through your story that um, that we see that corruption, specifically um, state violence against um, uh, you know against other yeah against civilians, mm -hmm. is really a global phenomenon, which is I think oftentimes not seen, not recognized by the media. Yeah. Yes, thank you. Your story is really great. Thank yeah. you. No, your story was amazing. Like, I actually, when I first read your story in class, because I was in class with you, I was like, wow. yeah. I felt like I was so moved by everything that you were saying, and it was just so true. And I was like, wow. Um, This piece draws... You. You're welcome. It was really great. It was actually one of my favorites. Oh. Um. This piece draws parallel to the American Black Lives Matter movement, comparing iconography of the murder of Alexis to a 17-year-old Trevor Martin's case of police brutality. In this comparison, do you feel there is something to be learned by both citizens and officers of the law about why cases like this stick and cause such a response? Also, in your research of this case, do you feel there is a message being sent out by the Greek justice system in their release of Alexis's murder, as many say they are in Trayvon Martin's? Okay, first of all, I would I would like to correct you for a moment. I'm I said it wrong. I, I, no, 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 no. That was completely fine. Um, the quote unquote Trayvon Martin here for me is Kostas, is the other guy, not Alexis. Because Alexis was was Greek, um, Kostas, on the other hand, is of Romani descent. He is Greek as well, but he's of Romani descent, which in Europe is um, an ethnic an ethnic minority. Um, 
And in Greece specifically, as I write in the piece, there is an estimated population of 100 to 300,000 Greek Romani people, which doesn't seem like a lot, but when you consider the fact that the entire population of Greece is 11 million, it's a lot of people, you know? Yeah. So yeah, I, I made that comparison because, first of all, after having consulted Professor Drazo, but also because um, because I, I, I felt that it would help my classmates understand the distinction between the two better. Because mm -hmm. when we're talking about police brutality, like I said before, in America, it's usually, most of the time, racially motivated, yeah? So yeah, sure. that's what, those are the examples that my classmate, classmates, having been, having been born in America, and, and growing up in America would understand. So in order to make it a bit more easy, I guess, for them to, to understand the difference between Costas and Alexis, I I brought that in, that distinction. Got so. it. That was a really good mm -hmm. point. Yeah, it's worth noting for people who don't know that the, the Roma traditionally have darker skin than yeah. the population right you know yeah. it i mean we're we're generally uh, like olive skinned like all mediterraneans are right. but romani people have have darker skin um think of uh i guess a middle eastern person like that kind of uh darker complexion um yeah. because right. there are speculations that the romani people started out in or in northern india which right. have not been you know we're not sure yet but that's why they have darker skin and that's why they're discriminated against in Europe and not just right. in Greece. We're talking about other countries in Europe as well, in the Balkans especially. There, there's huge populations of Romani people in the Balkans. So Yes. There was a second yeah. part to your question, Brianna, and I, I, I don't think I answered it, but I don't remember it, so I'm going to need you to repeat. So the second question was, in your research of this case, do you feel that there is a message being sent out by the Greek justice system in their release of Alexis's murder as there are in Trade and Martins or Costa Rica, uh, as I say? Yeah, I mean, I don't really know. I mean, I'm, I'm very disappointed um, and disheartened by the political situation in my country. Not just now, but for for many many years, it's been it's been really bad, um, and I I I don't think that there was a, a different outcome, to be honest with you, I don't think there was a way that he would spend life in prison. So, wow. Mm. Yeah. In this piece, you also mention a personal experience as your younger self protesting while not really understanding the meaning of what you're protesting for. And only when you got older did you understand the deeper nuances of injustice and police brutality. Would you say that you would have rather learned it later down the line, the injustices, while more mature? Or would you have preferred to have known about it as a younger self actually protesting? I would have rather known. To be honest, I would have rather known um, of the situation in my country. Um, it took me a while to understand why we were doing that, because, you know, when you when you get to middle school in Greece, you're 12 years old, right? Because um, our, our primary school here is six years, not five, like it is in the, in the States. So you're 12 years old, you enter middle school, um, 12, 13, and you see the older kids, the ones that are like 15, you know? They're like, oh, we're going to go sit outside of the yard as a form of protest. So you're like, okay, cool. Let's go. Right. Like, I, I'm mm -hmm. going to go to class. That's fucking <laughs> great. Let's do it. So that was, um, but I, I would have rather known. I mean, I did know, but I wasn't as familiar with the case as I am mm -hmm. now at, at 22 years old, as I was when I was 13 years old. Right. Um, right. I wish someone would have come up and said, like, yo, like, this is why we're doing this. And this is exactly what happened. Uh, um, yeah, but I don't no one did. But... Hard on yourself. You're only just a kid. There's only so I... much a 12 year old. Can... No, I mean, listen, yeah. I'm not being too hard on myself. But on the other hand, 
um, everything came like as I grew older, like I said, when I when I reached high school, when I became like 16, 17, you start seeing all these things happening and it hits you like a freight train. Right. If I had known before, I might have been more, I guess, accustomed more in but like the prepared know. almost yeah more yeah a little bit a little bit yeah um but yeah, I, didn't, like I didn't have that. of age moment like when you understand yeah. something politically or right. yes yeah because i also grew up in a area of athens that's it's like a good area it's not like a not a rich area it's not a rich area but it's a it's a good neighborhood you know there's mostly families living here there's older people living here um, I don't live downtown. I'm like 15 minutes from the center of the city, but I'm not in the center of the city. Um, so it was it was different growing up here, and because all of the the kids that I went to school with came from families that were not well off, but more I guess more well off than my family. Um, I guess they might have had a different attitude towards some things. Um. But I was, I'm, I'm not going to say that they were bad kids, that they did not understand why we were doing this, that they did not care for doing this because they did. But I think it would be very, a very different experience if I was to grow up in a downtown and went to a school downtown. Um, there is a, diff, a very different collection of kids that attend those schools. And we're talking public schools, obviously. Always, we're in Greece. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, and lastly, Chris, what, if anything, would you like listeners to take away from this story? Um, that police brutality is not an American issue. It's a global issue that it's something very important that we should keep protesting we should keep doing everything that we're doing even if it means sitting outside and not going to class on right. the anniversary of alexis death you know mm-hmm. um i don't think things are going to change anytime soon at least for my country and i'm not being a pessimist i'm being a realist because i i see what's happening now mm-hmm. i'm in the know i i get the news and, you know I am informed now, so I'm I'm more informed than I was, at least, and that that's that's what I wanted to take from this. That it's it's not just America; it's everywhere. Absolutely. Thank you for this mm-hmm. lesson. Yeah, great takeaway. Thank you for your story. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you guys. Beautifully written. Thank you. Thank you so much. And that concludes our second episode of our eighth season, Shadows of the Shield. We are excited to bring you these stories. We are honored to continue amplifying voices from backgrounds you don't normally hear from in the creative nonfiction genre. You can always find out more at www.lifeoutloudpodcast.com or by searching Life Out Loud Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or YouTube. We also have an Instagram and Facebook if you want to see some behind-the-scenes content. We like to thank everyone who helps make this possible, including our sound engineers and editors, as well as our episode writers, our website developers, everyone behind the scenes here at Laugh Out Loud. And to our audience, we hope you love these stories as much as we did. It was a joy to bring them to you. A very special thank you to everyone listening in. We'll see you soon and good night. Good night. Good night. Or good morning. <laughs> <laughs>